Well, today's show is brought to you by Bedgear. Bedgear makes performance bedding based on the way that you sleep. So you choose your mattress, your pillow, the sheets. It's based on your body temperature, size, and your sleep style. Each piece has layers of powerful temperature-regulating technology that adjust your body temperature to your environment as you sleep. I have the pillow. The pillow is like this cooling uh, sensation on my head. I cannot sleep without it anymore. Sleep, it fuels everything that we do. So you need to have a performance sleep system that works hard for you. And now our listeners can start building your own personalized sleep system with 20% off. Just visit bedgear.com. That's B-E-D-G-E-A-R.com. And use special code TESH, T-E-S-H, B-E-D-G-E-A-R.com. Offer code T-E-S-H. Our guest this week is actually one of my favorite authors of all time. Have you ever read the book? Uh, I don't know if you guys ever read it, but it's, it's, it's Blue Like Jazz. Uh, it is one of my favorite books about what it means to be to have a real faith that you that you live out in um, in in the world that you live in a, in a very real way. And uh, the book's author is Donald Miller, Don Miller, uh, and they've, they've turned it into a movie. It's a phenomenal look at faith in in modern times. And Don Miller's take on things is uh, it's unique to say the least. But I think he's a great thinker, and we are honored to have him with us. So we're going to ask him a bunch of questions about uh, about how you how you can live your life uh, with with your eye on God and how how what real faith looks like in today's world. So without further ado, I'm very excited to bring you guys Donald Miller. I think I think we want to start with something that we all have an issue with and 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 basically you you've in your book you talk about a lot about different different phases that people go through and different emotions and some of us go through funks at a time uh what advice do you have actually for people who are in a funk well i think naturally funks are part of life so i think we're we get uh, one a week let's say that after that there might be something wrong my favorite um uh sort of philosopher slash psychologist a guy named victor frankel Viktor Frankl says the deepest need of every human being is to experience a deep sense of meaning. That's what, what we all want in life. And he says there's three ways to do it. First is have a project that you're working on. Uh, so some reason to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, I don't think uh, idle time is good for any of us. And, I, and he says have a group of unconditional friend, uh, friends who love you unconditionally, right? So a community. Then the third was a redemptive perspective on your suffering. And what he means by that is whenever you experience a challenge, to be able to look at that from both, you know, a negative perspective, this is hard or something to grieve, and also a positive perspective. So be able to say, uh, even though, you know, I lost my job, uh, I never liked my job, and this frees me up to be a lounge singer or whatever I want to do. So those three things, have a project that demands your time, a group of friends who love you unconditionally, and then try to look at challenges from both the, the perspective of a ch this is a challenge, but also this is going to benefit me in, in some way. To me, that's always been a recipe for... Uh, getting out of a funk pretty quickly is to check off those three things and make sure they're in line. You're famous for saying that Christian faith is a relationship rather than a formula. Can you can you tell us a little more about that? Well, I when I, you know, I grew up in a church that just believed that if you did this, this, and this, uh, you could get God to act. And uh, I grew up, in other words, believing that God was some sort of computer that you you programmed right to do what you wanted. And as I grew up, I realized that uh, you know. God interacts with us much more like our, our friends and our spouses and, our, and the people that we know than he does like a machine. In other words, he's a person. 
And that means there's a relationship there, and relationships are very complicated. You're dealing with two entities that have their own will. And so God has a will and I have a will, and that means uh, we have to somehow contextually go into this relationship. And the, the way that I, I monitor my relationship, if, if you will, with God is the same way I do with my wife. I, I check in. I just check in and make sure we're doing okay. And uh, often when I check in with my wife, she says, you're not doing okay. <laughs> you, need to, you need to do differently. And often when I check in with God, he says, you're not doing okay. You need to do differently. That's what I mean by relationships. It, it just, you know, to me, my faith is a relationship with God. And, and uh, I interact with him uh, as though and because he is a deity with a, a will of his own and a being and a presence of his own. So I, I welcome the complexity of that relationship and how it changes and, and shapes as I get older and as I change and, and grow from a kid to an adult and from an adult to hopefully somebody who's more and more wise, the, the relationships change. One of the things that I struggle with, you know, if you, if you read about people in, in history, martyrs in the early church or people even in the Bible, they lived by their faith every day, but in modern life, it doesn't really seem possible. So how, how can you live by faith in your everyday life nowadays? Well, for me, with my staff and, and the company that I run, we have a, a saying. It's actually one of our core values in our company. It's on a poster in the wall, uh, of our, on the wall of our office, and it says this, we live out past the breakers. And what we mean by that is, uh, you know, sometimes when you're swimming in the ocean and you just get right out past the waves where you can't touch and you feel a slight sense of, am I okay? Can I do this? Uh, we say around our office, if, if that's how you feel about your job, then you're in the right place because we swim out past what we're capable of doing. I think that's the only way that people really grow. And so for me and my faith, it's the same way. I, 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 I want to do things in my life that I don't feel like are, are very... Uh, practical or that I'm going to be able to get them done on my own. And for me, that's swimming out past the breakers. And I'm amazed about everything that I've thought, felt that way about eventually comes to pass. And uh, I think that's what it means to live by faith, that I practically am not going to be able to get this done. I don't quite have what it takes to get this done, but I'm going to swim out past the breakers and trust that everything's going to be okay. To me, that's what living by faith is. What are some of the best ways we can figure out what it is that lights us up in life? I like to say that... Uh, that if you want to figure out what your passion in is, passion uh, is in life, and what you should be doing, uh, kind of ask yourself what lights you up, what makes you happy, what gets you excited to get out of bed in the morning, and then find the crossroad between that passion and what you can actually do. Right. So what you're skilled at and what you're good at, uh, what people say, man, you're just good at this. And if there's a place where those two roads intersect. I would circle that place and I would live there for a long time because it's going to be the most productive for you and for everybody around you. One of the hard things for me to do is actually accept myself for who I am and, 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 really, and really look at who I am and accept that. Uh, how do I do that? How do we accept ourselves? Well, I've been in this business a long time and I've been able to meet a lot of people who have accomplished a great many things. And uh, for some reason, sitting around a fire pit at night or something, I'll occasionally have these folks talk to me about their insecurities. And I'm amazed at some of the most accomplished athletes or politicians or leaders of Fortune 500 companies feel just as insecure in life as I do. And yet the difference between them and some of us is they get up and they keep moving into the fear every day, keep trusting that they can get something done, that God has them on this planet for a reason. So I don't think fear or insecurity is, should be foreign to any of us. I think that's a normal human condition. You know, the question is, what do we do with it? 
And the more we move into it and the more we experience a little bit of success and we thought we couldn't do this and now we can do this, the more confidence that we get. If you want confidence in life, just succeed. That's all you have to do. Try something until you get good at it and then you'll be confident in that. And, uh, but I, I, I do think insecurities are just a natural part of the human journey. You know, there's a thing as I study stories, which is what I do for a living, uh, that every hero in every movie, almost every single hero, has a backstory of brokenness. That is, they screwed up in the past somehow. They really blew it. And throughout the, the story, they are challenged usually to go into the very place where they had already screwed up and try it again. And if it's a, a happy ending, if it's a successful ending, or a comedy, as we say, in the literary field, then they will succeed in that. And if it's a tragedy, they don't. But I always ask people, are you scared? Are you insecure? Do you have something you want to do that you don't think you can do? Have you failed in the past? If all that is true for you, then you have everything it takes to be a hero. That's Luke Skywalker. That's Katniss. That's Bridget Jones. That's Tommy Boy. That's uh, the King and King George and King's Speech. That's Billy Bean and Moneyball. That's every inspirational film you've ever seen is people who are just like you, insecure, having to gut it out and try to make it happen. What do you think are the top relationship hang-ups and, and what, how do we address them? The number one relationship killer, and it's been proven by scientists, if I'm not mistaken, at the University of Washington in a pretty in-depth study, is contempt. Wow. When we feel contempt for our partner, the relationship has begun to end. Okay. And what that means is when I lay awake and think, man, I'm so much better than this person or I deserved better than this person, uh, that's probably about when the relationship is starting to end. And we have to do a couple things. One is we have to humble ourselves and realize we really don't deserve to be with anybody, especially if we're already married because we're going to stick with this marriage. And we have to somehow redeem this relationship and get a better view of this human being and maybe even participate in their transformation so that they become a much better person. Uh, so that, that's a real reality. I'll tell you what the, the most beautiful kind of relationships are. It's when each person in the relationship just feels like um, they got the better end of the deal, meaning they're not as good as this other person. This other person is uh, you know, more humble, more kind, whatever it is, but they don't deserve to be with them. And so you know, one of the things that, that Betsy and I do in our relationship is we're just constantly reminding each other how great the other person really is. You know, I do things that annoy Betsy all the time, but she has a knee-jerk reaction of thinking, well, you know, he does things that annoy me, but I get this, I get this, I get this other thing, and I love this. And within about 30 seconds, you're back on track. And so it's just a great way to practice being in relationships with not just our spouse, or, but with our kids, with uh, the people that we work with. You know, this is kind of hard to put up with, but I get this out of it. Then we begin to enjoy being around them a little more, and that creates a soil where they begin to flourish and they even become the very people that we aspired for them to be. So contempt will kill it, and just gratitude and a feeling of I don't deserve to be in this relationship with somebody this great will make a relationship thrive. And what are a couple of qualities we should look for in a potential spouse? Well, I had a, a therapist say to me once, uh, when I was in a really bad relationship, and he was telling me to get out of this relationship, and um, the therapist said to me, you know, as long as the other party is always going to demand or need to be right, uh, the relationship won't work because we both have to be really moldable and self-aware and we have to understand that we're not going to be right about everything. And I think two self-aware people can go really, really far. And so to me, it's this, uh, it's this ability to compromise and to be molded by each other. And, you know, relationships, uh, I think by God's design, changes. They turn us into people that we didn't used to be. 
we become a little more like the other person. And the only way we do that is by compromise. When one person in the relationship is demanding that the other person comply rather than compromise, I think it's, uh, it's terrible stuff. So what would I look for in a spouse? Somebody who's able to change, somebody who's self-aware, uh, and somebody who is able to compromise in a relationship. So let's say I found that perfect someone. I found the person that has the qualities that I'm looking for. Um, I'm a bad listener. I like to talk. So how do I become a better listener to my partner? So it's just a trick that I learned, a tip that I got, if you will, years ago. And that's just, uh, you know, I'm this guy who, you know, I'm, I kind of have an agenda in life. There are things that I want to get done, and I don't have a lot of patience for not getting those things done. In fact, Betsy and I had a conversation literally this morning on the back porch over coffee, and, uh, and she was just kind of saying, yeah, I need more downtime with you uh, rather than, like, let's advance goals. And uh, so we were just talking, and uh, the, the tip that I remembered this morning was uh, this ability to just stop and rather than say, well, let's do this, or give some advice, or let's move forward on this, uh, to stop and say, what I, what I think I hear you saying is this, and repeat back to Betsy what it is that, she thinks, that I think she's trying to say, and then not add anything until she asks for editorial comment, <laughs> right? Uh, but until then, I'm amazed that my wife has taught me so much about one thing that people need, both men and women. Um, they just need somebody with them. They don't always need to be fixed or to be helped. They just need, sometimes the problem is they're doing something and they feel alone. And so for me, those words, uh, what I hear you saying is this, and repeating it back to them, it helps somebody feel so much less alone and heard. And to me, it's the key to listening is to just repeat it back and say, did I get you right? And not really add anything after that. What's one thing that we should make sure to ask our partner before we get married? So, if you're about to get married, like, what's the one thing you should know going in? So, uh, three, a question to ask your partner before you get married. And my question has been this, and I've told this to a lot of young couples who are already married and couples that are about to get married. And the question is, what's your story? And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, I have this tool that I use with people. I just draw a piece of li- piece of uh, or a line across a piece of paper. And I just say, give me five or six highs and lows, highest moment of your life, lowest moment of your life. Give me five or six of those and do them in order if you can. And just tell me what that was like. What was it like to win a track meet in high school? And then what was it like when your parents got divorced? And what was it like? And I'm amazed at how somebody who I have known for years can come alive, their whole backstory their mannerisms make much more sense. The way they react to situations make much more sense. I'm, I, I see them in such a much more empathetic way. I'm so much more softer and gentle with them. Or I celebrate the things that they accomplish, knowing that this is a little mirror image of something they'd accomplished in the past that meant so much to them. Their story comes alive. So I taught this young couple to do this uh, maybe three or four years ago. They had been married for a few years. And I was walking through the airport in Nashville, Tennessee, and, one of the, and the, the gentleman stopped me. His wife wasn't with him. And he said, you know, you told me that we would know each other better than we've ever known each other. And I, I didn't believe you because we obviously are married. We know each other. And he said, we just went home. And one of the high points on both of our stories is now just sharing our story because we had no idea who the other person was or their backstory until it was explained in that way. So the most important question to me to get to know each other is what's your story? How, so you are, um, you're a lot like me and I love, I love stories. I love movies. I get a lot of criticism because of how much I love them and people think I hide in them. But, um, I think that they're very valuable in understanding the human condition. So how, 
how do we go from some, being someone like me, somebody who watches stories, to living a life that's actually worth watching and living a life that's, that goes beyond just consuming stories, but actually having a story? Well, when you study story, you see some common characteristics among all of them. In fact, stories are so formulaic, and if you know the formulas, there are about seven of them, it'll ruin movies for you forever. If I go to the movies with my wife, she hates it because I'll elbow her at some point and I'll say, that guy's going to die in 31 minutes, right? It's that predictable. But common characteristics of a hero, one, the hero always knows what they want. They don't wake up cloudy-headed. If you were to pause the Jason Bourne movie, Bourne Identity, everybody in the audience would know he wants to know who he is and he wants to defeat that bad guy. And I think a lot of times in our lives, when you pause your life, and you've lost the plot. You don't know what you want today. You don't know what you're trying to build. You don't know what you're trying to accomplish. Life can feel a little bit meaningless. In fact, my favorite psychologist calls it the existential vacuum. Uh, and what we need to do to get out of the existential vacuum is we need to uh, identify just something in life that I want to create, something I want to build, a family, a better relationship, a community, maybe a little company, something that propels me getting out of bed in the morning. That's the number one ingredient of a great story, and I think it's one of the biggest ingredients of a great life. Uh, the second one is every hero, and remember this, will always face challenges. If you don't have hardships in life, if there are, if there are not people coming against you or challenges that you have to face or even internal struggles, then you cannot live a meaningful life. It is a necessary component. If I played for you a movie in which the hero wanted something and got that something with ease, Nobody would be inspired that, by that film. And so when people are sitting at your funeral, they're going to say, you know, this person really wanted this beautiful thing for the world. And they had to overcome so many challenges to get it, and they made it happen. They're going to feel at your funeral the same way you feel after you watch a really beautiful movie. They're going to feel inspired, and they're going to feel grateful. And for a moment, you will have taught them that maybe life can be more meaningful and beautiful than you ever thought. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Don is going to tell us all about uh, the importance of finding a mentor and how to get unstuck from the rut you're in in your life. So uh, stay with us. Just want to remind you guys that our show is brought to you by Bed Gear. Do you sleep hot or cold? Are you a stomach sleeper, a side sleeper? I'm back inside. But all of these things affect your sleep needs, and no two people sleep exactly the same way. And that's why Bed Gear makes performance bedding that's based on the way that you sleep. Each bedding essential has layers of powerful temperature-regulating technology that adjust your body temperature to your environment as you sleep. You choose your mattress, you choose your pillow, you choose your sheets based on your body temperature, your size, and your sleep style. With four personalized choices and a pillow ID tool, you can find the pillow that's right for you. Meanwhile, Bedgear's performance mattresses come in two comfort options, both built with cooling technology, and their performance sheets keep hot air out and cool air moving through. Put the pieces together, and you've got your very own sleep superpower, and it is absolutely a superpower. Look, our body temperature uh, it totally affects our hormones as we sleep, and if you can lower your body temperature, make yourself feel cooler, your hormones actually make it easier for you to fall asleep. I've got the pillow. I cannot sleep without it. Every other pillow now feels stuffy because that pillow breathes so cool. It feels so good. And don't forget, sleep fuels everything. So create a performance sleep system that works hard for you. And now our listeners can start building their very own specialized sleep system with 20% off. Visit bedgear.com, that's B-E-D-G-E-A-R.com, and use our special code TESH, T-E-S-H. 
This episode is also brought to you by Virtue Labs. Virtue Labs is a new hair care brand with a goal of giving everyone the best hair scientifically possible. Six years ago, a group of bioscientists working in restorative medicine discovered an incredible new protein called alpha-carotene 60KU, which has the power to completely transform your hair. Alpha-carotene 60KU is a whole human protein that is identical to the keratin in your own hair, so it can resurface and fill in cracks from damage to change your hair's quality and appearance forever. That means more bounce, more shine, more strength, and more life for your hair. And right now, you can only find it in Virtue Lab's line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Not to mention, each formula was created to address specific issues like heat damage, frizz, or thinning hair. In clinical testing, Virtue found a 67% reduction in frizz after four washes and a 95% reparation of split ends after five applications. If you're ready to experience it, listeners can now try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping with the code TESH, T-E-S-H. So visit VirtueLabs.com, V-I-R-T-U-E-L-A-B-S.com to place your order. It's time to start treating your hair with a little more humanity. It's time for Virtue. I have a lot of bad habits, a lot of things that I um, uh, that I hold on to. These walls that I have, I have built up. So you, you talk about knocking down old walls um, t- to create a better life. How how do you, how, what are the first steps to knocking down those old walls uh, as quickly as possible? Well, I'll tell you the the biggest thing to understand when you're studying human beings and when you're playing human beings over the the stuff of a great story, and it's this: people are designed to change. When you look at great stories, Luke Skywalker doesn't know if he has what it takes to be a Jedi at the beginning of the movie. At the end, he has confidence he's a Jedi. King George in King's speech thinks he's a a babbling idiot at the beginning of the speech with a stutter. At the end, he's confident and he gives a major address to the people of Britain saying, we've got to hold tight through this terrible war. And he has confidence at the end. You see it with uh, that Shakespearean classic epic Uh, story Tommy Boy where he has to save the dad's company and at the beginning he's just a dumb oaf of a kid and at the end he's confident. Uh, I think stories work that way because life works that way. We are designed to change. That's the number one thing every human being has to understand. You are not designed to be the same person you were 10 years ago. You're supposed to change. And uh, I think a lot of people think, well, this is just who I am. I was told I was this by my teachers. I was told I was this by my parents. I was told by this by an old girlfriend or boyfriend. Therefore, that must be who I am. That's a lie. It may be who you were then, but you were designed to change. So why not just change? And when we embrace that old identity, it doesn't allow us to change. But when we begin to let it go and say, you know what? That's not who I have to be anymore. I can be somebody different. You will see the natural forces of life begin to shape you and mold you into something better. So the biggest key to changing is understanding that you can and that you were designed to. One of the cool things about the success that you've enjoyed is that you get to talk to a lot of leaders in the faith community, a lot of just good thinkers in general. What one thing have you learned from some of those leaders uh, that, you, that, that, that you've talked to uh, about faith? What's the most important, most important thing? Um, you know, I've had the privilege of sitting down with a lot of really great leaders, really great men and women who've changed the world and who have had a deep faith and an abiding faith in God uh, in their uh, executing that change. Uh, and the one thing that I've found that they all have in common, I mean the really powerful ones all have in common, is they believe that they share agency with God. And the agency is somewhat of a literary term, uh, or at least I, I use it as a literary term, but it means they share power. 
That means uh, that God goes to them and says, hey, let's do something together. I'm going to make some things happen. You make some things happen. But let's, let's keep our arms around each other uh, as we move this forward. In other words, rather than waiting and saying, hey, God, what do you want me to do in this life? Give me an assignment. They say, uh, God, what can we do together? And God says, hey, well, let's dream up something uh, really beautiful. That way they take ownership in this thing that God is giving them. And I think a lot of times when we pray and say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? He says, well, Don, what do you want to do? I'm not a controlling, dysfunctional dad here. I honor the fact that you have a heart and a will. Can we dream up something together? And to me, that is where I bond with God. When we create, we identify something that I want to do. God, will you help me? Now, sometimes he says, no, that's not my plan. That's completely selfish. Let's do something else. He's like a good dad, right? To me, that's where we bond. I have a friend named Bob. He, uh, he says that... Uh, he said, one, he, to me, he said once, uh, Don, um, uh, do you know what you call somebody who studies a person without ever getting to know them? And he said, you call them a stalker. And he said, I think God is tired of everybody stalking him, and he wants to actually do something with us. And so I think the point here is identify something that's in your heart, something that's good for the world, and ask God to, to uh, go with you in doing that thing. And I think in that interaction, we bond and have a relationship and have intimacy with him that we've been looking for. I know for a lot of people, they are raising a child on their own and being a single parent is hard. I lived part of that life for a long time as a kid. Uh, What words of encouragement or what advice do you have for for single parents trying to raise kids on their own right now? Uh, Well, I I have a little bit of advice, but I mostly have encouragement. And I would just want to say, if you're a single mom, a single dad raising a kid on your own, you're on a heroic journey. Uh, heroes sacrifice, and you're sacrificing for those kids. And I personally just want to thank you for that. My mother did that for me. Uh, my mother did a couple other things, too. And uh, one of the things she did as a single mom was she introduced me to great men in my community uh, who kind of took me under their wing and uh, mentored me. And there's been about eight of them throughout my life, kind of one guy to another who taught me uh, first, that I mattered, then that I was a skilled person in the career, in, in, the, in the field of writing, and was able to start writing. And then as my career took off and I started businesses, some other guys stepped in. But there was always somebody, somebody another man who stepped in and gave me a, a, a mentor. So especially to the single moms out there, you know, find those guys in your life uh, who can mentor your kid and just be a presence uh, for them. Uh, and so to me, it's, you know, there's, there's just no replacement for those relationships. Now, none of those mentors are going to take the place of a dad, but they're going to shore up some of the hurt that might affect your kid. And the fact, you know, I know so many young men and women who grew up without uh, a dad in the home, some who grew up without a mom in the home, who are just thriving. They're doing well. So there is so much hope for your child, but it's really relational. And I don't think you're going to be able to do it all on your own. Incorporate your whole community into that into your child's life and give them the mentors that they need. We've had a lot of people on the show uh, talk about about the importance of mentors, and I I know it's important. Uh, it's it's really key to have those kinds of people in your life. Do you do, as an adult is finding mentors important, or or basically? Your guidance counselor was your number one mentor. Do I think as an adult, finding mentors is important? Uh, Yes. I mean, I'm lucky that I had this habit growing up because these mentors would step into my life when I was a kid. So I'm used to looking around for the people who have accomplished more than me, you know, and and 
trying to get time with them. So in my life, it, it means pointing at the horizon, right? So if I want to build a big business, I'm looking at the horizon, I'm pointing at that guy because he's got a big business and I want to get to know him. I want to spend as much time with him or her as I possibly can. That's been a lifelong thing for me and I just love it. I believe in it so much that Betsy and I just started a college scholarship fund that kids who are, uh, are underserved can go to college at Lipscomb University if they're showing entrepreneurial instincts. But it wasn't enough for them just to get a college scholarship. Uh, in order to uh, get that scholarship, they have to have a mentor. That's the, the, you have to have a mentor outside the school, outside your family, somebody who is speaking in your life. And I, you know, as much as I love college and as much as I love Lipscomb, I think the mentorship is probably going to be just as valuable as that education. And the mentorship is free. So the fact that we get to, get to, and you wouldn't believe some of these unbelievably accomplished people, how much they want to pour into your life. Just nobody's asking them, right? Nobody's asking them. Because uh, they think that uh, you know nobody would want to help them, and they do. They want to help you. So uh, I think as an adult, finding those people who know what you want to know, and spending time with them, uh, it's just the way to grow and the way to change and the way to shape the world uh, in the future. How? This is kind of a weird question, but how do we find God's strength through the power of prayer? Uh, well, you know, of all the spiritual disciplines, uh, that's probably the one that uh, actually keep up. Uh, Betsy and I pray every day. I pray on my own every day. I don't know why. I just really like talking to God. It somehow clears my thoughts. It gives me a sense of security in life. And so the first thing is just to develop the habit of prayer. And then the other thing for me, and it's been more of a shift recently as I've gotten older and hopefully more wise, is that I pray, but then I also listen. And I don't just listen for what God is, is saying to me. I listen for what's going on in my life and what would be a wise decision in this moment. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't believe just in that meditative time of prayer, of talking to God, how humble your heart gets, how small you realize you are, how big you realize He is, how uh, unbelievably unattainable most of what you're dreaming about actually is, how much you're going to need Him. And, uh, you know... I rarely come out of a, a little walk. I walk around in the field behind my house and usually where I talk and to God and I throw a tennis ball for my chocolate lab. I rarely come back from that walk with the same plan uh, in that day as I, I did when I left for that walk. Uh, it's just a recalibration. So prayer to me is a huge aspect of my decision making and, and, uh, and uh, you know, my, my daily making of a plan and trying to push the plot forward as they, as they say. So you're a prayer, and you obviously believe in that power. Um, do you think that it's important to pray with your partner? Well, yes, I think so. Uh, I will say this, just as a man, you know, men aren't naturally great at intimacy. And so often my wife will say, Don, can we pray? And I, I don't like the fact that she's normally the one asking rather than me. Uh, but it's just a, it's an intimate thing where I just want to fix things and do things and build things. And for her, it's like, can we connect with each other and with God? And I'm like, ah, that just feels so unnatural. But yeah, we can pray. Uh, it's amazing how I often don't want to do that and then come out the, you know, the other side of that prayer time, feeling that our family is more strong, uh, more on track and more centered. And so uh, for me, you know, even though Betsy often leads that part of our life, she didn't lead the prayer part because I love to pray, but praying as a family, she's often the one initiating that. And I'm so grateful for it because I think we're stronger because she does. 
When we hit a rough patch in our lives, what are things we can do to get unstuck? Well, uh, when we hit a rough patch, I think one thing to recognize, the first thing to recognize is that you're an unbelievably relational human being. And I would even say before you try to fix the problem, try to get time with somebody that you trust and who likes you and who cares about you unconditionally. And sit down over coffee or a backyard fire or dinner and just spend time with them. And it's amazing how coming out of that conversation, being affirmed and encouraged by that person, uh, just, just sets you up with much more wisdom and a perspective on it that frees you up from worry. A lot of the times when we've hit a rough patch, what we're, what we're really afraid of is that we're alone and that we're going to have to solve this problem on our own and our life is doomed. And we get together with another person, and even if we don't talk about the problem, you just get this sense of, I'm not alone in this. My life is not doomed. If everything falls apart, I'm still, I've still got this person. We're still good friends, right? So to me, even before you try to answer the problem, which is contextual, make sure you, you get your mind back into community and relationship and, uh, and know that you're not alone in this whole thing. That way you can think with some sanity and you can be rational in your decision-making moving forward. I have a serious technology addiction and it interrupts my day all the time. And I have a really hard time even just setting aside 10 minutes. Like how, how do you set aside time for God? Uh, well, I'll tell you, um, I, I think we just need to leave our cell phone at home. <laughs> if you can, uh, leave it at home. And uh, if you're going out with your wife, leave your cell phone at the front door. And you won't believe how much that honors her, right? And I think even if we're going for a walk or a prayer time or something like that, uh, we just need to leave it behind for that hour or two. And the more you can do that, it's amazing how much more you get done. All those text messages and emails and Instagram posts and Facebook updates and Twitter feeds, they're all going to be there for that delightful time when you lay down in bed next to your wife and don't connect. You just stare at your phone next to each other. <laughs> so there's time for that. But other than that, just leave it at home. I find that I make a lot of my life decisions based on what's going to be easiest or what I'm most afraid of. Um, just because I'm a human being and because that's, that's, that's how I, how I operate. Um, how, how do we stop making those decisions in our lives based on fear? Okay. Well, I, th I remember reading a book. It was like a self-help book when I was in my early twenties and it was, you know, it was one of those old Norman Vincent Peale kind of books, right? Enthusiasm makes the difference or whatever. And they gave me a little tool that I've used ever since. And so I'll just share it with you. And it was imagine the worst case scenario just like stop and say, if this happens, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And then ask yourself how bad that would really be. And usually it's nowhere near as bad as you think. Uh, you know, if you lose your job or you get pulled over and get a ticket or whatever. Uh, and then process from there and say, okay, am I willing to risk that? Uh, but I will say, you know, um, I think a rewarding, uh, meaningful life uh, goes to people who live into their fears. And most often, there's very little to fear. I remember just recently standing on a cliff, uh, jumping in, you know, wasn't even a big jump, maybe 25 feet or something like that, and just kind of processing, you know, the, the worst that can happen is going to happen. I'm going to get wet. That's it. <laughs> That's all that I've got in front of me. So I have no idea why I fear this so much. And then you just kind of step off and do it, and you end up wet. And uh, I, I think one of the things that we fear the most is just change. You know, we're comfortable where we are. And so is, it's going to be uncomfortable or it's going to be weird for a minute. Well, it can, but if you know it's going to be better, go do it. You'll adjust really fast. You'll adjust really fast. It was just with some buddies swimming in a creek maybe three days ago, and it was ice cold water. 
and I'd done it enough to know you're going to have three seconds of pain and then your body's going to go numb and you're going to stay in this water and splash around for an hour and have a good time. And so, so often the thing that's holding us back from whatever it is we want to do in life is three seconds of discomfort and the rest you just get used to it and have a great time. So calculate the costs. Uh, listen, wear your helmet. You know, you know who I'm talking to. <laughs> no, don't do anything stupid, uh, but calculate the cost, take the risk, and enjoy the benefits. So a lot of people are probably going through a hard time right now, or things aren't going well. I know I have that problem all the time. When things aren't going well, how how do how do you remind yourself? How can we remind ourselves that God has a bigger plan? Uh, you know, I learned something years ago, uh, and I was on a on a, on a debate, if you will, it was a presidential debate. Uh, uh, my candidate was running against another candidate, and we were out as surrogate speakers, and we had to debate this other team, and they were really strong and intimidating. And the, the guy who uh, went on to work in the White House kind of turned to me and he said, listen, um, you know, I'm willing to lose the battle tonight, just don't lose the war. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we can lose this debate, and our candidate is still going to win the election. Uh, what we can't do is put our foot in our mouths and say something really stupid that gets on CNN and costs him the election. So he said, don't go for the jugular, just say what you know, be really clear, and if we lose, we lose, everything's going to be fine. You know, and I thought about that a million times since, especially in relationships. When I just get heated or frustrated, I'll think, you know what, let's just lose the battle right now so that we don't hurt somebody uh, really scar somebody for a long time or regret, go to bed tonight thinking, why in the world did I say that? Just lose this battle and win the war. I, some friends of mine and I, we rode our bicycles from Los Angeles to Delaware, if you can believe it. We took seven weeks to do it. And I looked around at this group and I thought, you know, probably every member of this group at some point, I'm just going to hate them, right? Because we haven't eaten. We're on mile 93 through the desert. And they're going to say something that's just going to set me off. And so I just, in the back of my head, said, I want to lose every battle all the way across America, every single one of them. And amazingly, somehow got to the end of that ride without having ever voiced any of my frustrations toward these people. And today, they're some of my most inspirational friends. There's just incredible people. And I think back, man, if I would have said that thing that I was thinking in Joshua Tree National Park, I would have never talked to that person again. There would still be hurt feelings. So me, the best relational advice, uh, lose the battle, but win the war. One question that gets asked a lot to people who are, um, who are people of faith uh, by, by people who just are questioning God's existence is, why do bad things happen uh, to good people, so to speak? And, uh, or why, why is this happening to me right now? What are the ways that somebody can cope with loss or grief when they, they don't necessarily want to? You know, I like Viktor Frankl's advice on dealing with grief. And basically, he says, you know, two things. The first thing is to grieve, to let yourself grieve, to not fight it, uh, to allow yourself all those waves of emotion that happen when we lose someone that we love or something terrible happens or we're beset by a tragedy in life. Then he says, uh, that's what your subconscious is going to want to do, and that's a natural healing mechanism. So let it happen. And he says there's this other thing you can do. And you kind of do this with your executive brain. You actually make a list of all the ways that this, uh, this tragedy, if you will, is, uh, is somehow beautiful or somehow meaningful. Perhaps it's humbled you. Perhaps it's taught people around you something. Perhaps uh, you know, this tragedy has caused people to see life differently. Uh, perhaps the legacy, if you've lost someone, of this person that you've lost has, has taught the world or left the world something really beautiful. And perhaps it's taught you 
the importance of investing in relationships. He said, make a list of those things. And what happens is the spotlight in your brain begins to move from the, the subconscious grieving slowly over time and begins to sweep across. And it now sees this from what would be called a redeemed perspective. And so, but you have to consciously make that list. If you don't consciously make that list, this list will win. But if you consciously make this, you know, the, the spotlight will shift. And this isn't just about tragedy. This is about minor setbacks. When you, you know, when you don't get what you want in life, to be able to, oh, let me make this list of why this is also meaningful. You know, he taught this to about 30,000 patients in the Viennese hospital system. Uh, many of them were suicidal. And under Viktor Frankl's watch, not a single patient committed suicide. So this is powerful, powerful stuff. I think when we're grieving, to take your executive brain and say, hey, there's probably an upside to this, and I'm going to make a list of what's on the upside of this, and I'm going to see if my brain just naturally focuses more on this, or at least or on this list, or at least has a balanced perspective on the suffering that I'm dealing with. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you like our show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to say one more, one last thank you to Donald Miller, author of Blue Like Jazz. I put a link to that book in the show notes. If you want, you can check it out. Uh, our our hosts are John Tesh, at uh, John Tesh on, on, on Twitter, facebook.com slash John Tesh, uh, Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard, facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, and Connie Selica, at Connie Selica, Facebook.com slash C Celica. Thank you guys for listening. Our show today was brought to you by Virtue Labs. Virtue Labs is a hair care brand with a vision to give everyone their best hair with the help of an incredible new protein called Alpha Keratin 60KU. Alpha Keratin 60KU is a whole human protein that is identical to the keratin in your own hair. And as a result, it'll actually fill in the cracks from damage to change your hair's quality and appearance forever. Try Alpha Keratin 60KU exclusively in Virtue Labs shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Just visit VirtueLabs.com and use the code TESH to try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping. That's V-R-T-U-E-L-A-B-S.com and offer code T-E-S-H.